0: We're back to Romans, we've returned to Romans, a book we've taken in sections since January of last year, and then we punctuate each section with uh, another place in Scripture, something that's raised in that section of Romans, and we go to it. And so each of the five series, this is now the fifth and final series, and each of the five has been linked, Uh, chapters uh, one through three of Romans, uh, the first section we talked about people skills, why the doctrine of sin matters. And then Romans chapters four and five, we talked about why the doctrine of faith matters. And then Romans six through eight, we talked about why the doctrine of grace matters. And then our last series in January and February of this year was Romans chapters nine through 11. That series was titled Chosen People why the doctrine of mercy matters, and now we come to our fifth and last section of Romans chapters 12 through 16, why the doctrine of love matters. And this uh, idea of easily edified comes from something that a, a professor of uh, our own, Ken Bores, at Wheaton College, a man named Harold Best, who was the uh, uh, leader of uh, music there for many years, Harold Best said, a mature Christian is easily edified. And we're going to unpack that through the summer as we go through what'll be about 13, maybe 14 or 15 uh, messages here. We could do 26 messages in Romans 12 through 16. We could do 39 messages in this last section of Romans. But I want to keep the section similar length to the others. I'm, I'm doing shorter series now. I've learned after years of preaching that people just get lost in longer series. I know some of you uh yearn for the Martin Lloyd-Jones and Donald Gray Barnhouse days of spending eight years in Romans 3.23, but we're just not in that era anymore. And so uh, I try to uh, not go too quickly, but not go too slowly. Plus, we're dealing with a dynamic, and this is just factual. This is not uh, aimed at anyone in particular, but uh, modern congregations give you uh, two Sundays a month, typically. And so uh, it's just easier when we take a series in a more concentrated period of time. So I, I appreciate most have understood uh, why we've done it that way. I have gotten some people, you're going too fast through Romans, and then that's just a given. Uh, but 13 to 14 messages over the summer, I think, will be a sufficient time for us here. If you're familiar with Romans, the layout of the book, the 16 chapters that comprise our New Testament book of Romans, If you're familiar with the layout, you know that it's not until chapter 12 in these opening two verses in chapter 12 that we're given anything to do. Now, that's not entirely accurate to say because there is some exhortation in the previous 11 chapters. There are some directives in places. But Paul has, to this point, concentrated on what's been done for us. It's also called the indicative And now he moves to the imperative. That's the familiar New Testament pattern. The book of Ephesians runs the same way. If you look at Ephesians, the first three chapters, here's what God's done for you. The last three chapters of Ephesians, now here's what you do in response. Romans is a much longer version of that. The first 11 chapters, here's what God has done for you. Now at chapter 12 through the end of the book, chapter 16, here's what you do in response to these great mercies that you've been shown. We're looking this morning at two of the best known verses in all the Bible. Again, we could do multiple sermons in just these two verses, many have. But I want to take these two verses today under two headings. Two verses, two headings. I want to talk with you about the imagery of living sacrifice and then the experience of living sacrifice. So, first, we're going to talk about the imagery of living sacrifice in verse one. What does this mean, living sacrifice? And then in verse 2, we'll talk about the experience of living sacrifice. This is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So first, the imagery. Spend a little time on the imagery. That it's a living sacrifice should sound odd to our ears. We're familiar with these two verses, these lines in Romans, and so we're used to thinking about this, but it should sound odd. It certainly sounded odd to the original context into which Paul wrote this. Because living sacrifice is a paradox. A paradox is something that looks contradictory. It looks like it doesn't go together, and yet it does. Paul is drawing upon the imagery of uh, what went behind uh, New Covenant worship, what, what was the forerunner of it, Old Covenant worship, where you took an animal to the temple, and there you offered your animal up as a sacrifice on the altar. The animal who was offered as a sacrifice was there to die. There was no such thing as a a living sacrifice. When you sacrifice the animal, the animal did not go home with you. So why put it like this? Why say in verse 1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, all this that I've covered with you so far of what God has done for you in Christ, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, your bodies. He means by that uh, our, our physical selves, our mental selves, our emotional selves, our spiritual selves, everything about us. Our bodies that we use for sin, back in chapters 1 through 3, that we use in sin that's both unrighteous and self-righteous both. These same bodies now have been redeemed. And now we present them, he says, verse 1, as a living sacrifice. Why, why put it like that? A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Spiritual worship is how the English Standard Version puts it. Sometimes this is rendered reasonable act of worship. You've probably seen it that way in other English renderings. And that's because the word that's modifying worship here can mean rational or logical, therefore reasonable. What Paul is saying is it follows. It follows that if God has done all this for you that the first 11 chapters spell out for us in Christ... It follows that if God has justified you, if he's cleansed you from every way that you've used your physical, emotional, mental, spiritual self for unrighteousness and self-righteousness, if God has justified us by the sacrifice of his son on our behalf, which is what makes us holy and acceptable to him, these terms in verse 1, then it follows we are living slain things. Even though living slain things seems at first blush, a contradiction in terms. But we've learned already in Romans that we exist in the world as what? Justified sinners. Meaning we've died with Christ. He told us that in chapter 6. Chapter 6 verse 8 to be specific. You've died with Christ. He says in chapter 6 verse 11, consider yourselves dead to sin. He says in chapter 8 to us, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But he also says, here's the tension... We still have a sin nature. That's Romans chapter 7 on into chapter 8. And we must make, make no provision for it. We'll get to that in chapter 13. Jesus' flawless obedience makes us right with God. Holy and acceptable to God. And notice that you've got the term acceptable twice here. You've got it in verse 1. You've also got it down in verse 2. So our obedience, our response to God, to all this mercy that we've been shown, first 11 chapters of Romans, our response, we obey not to make ourselves right with Him. That's been done for us. We obey in order to experience in our ongoing fallen state the power of God over the sin that comes so natural to us we obey in order to experience in this life transformation of ourselves in Christ. In fact, we, the, the, what was it? The fifth line into our service, singing, He breaks the power of canceled sin. This is why we obey, to experience that power, the power over canceled sin. We're made new to live new. So this imagery of living sacrifice here in verse 1, We know Paul is taking us back to the temple, back to the worshiper under that old covenant arrangement, going to the temple with an animal to sacrifice. However, and this is important, Paul does not have in mind the sin offering. In this imagery, he has in mind the burnt offering. Now, what's the difference? It would help to know some background in in Leviticus and how Uh, different offerings meant uh, different things but the difference is the sin offering has already been made for us the sin offering was often a, a burnt offering in itself but the sin offering has already been made see all that has preceded this in Romans chapters 1 through 11 Paul has taken pains in these chapters to show us the mercies of God applied to us what's been done for us So living sacrifice, verse 1, does not mean our making atonement for ourselves as if we can generate God's mercy for us now by all these things that we do as spelled out to us in the chapters to come. That can't be done. Let's put it this way using the words of another old hymn. The first 11 chapters of Romans is Jesus paid it all. And the final five chapters of Romans is all to him I owe. And it's, and it's owe not in the sense of a debtor's ethic as if we pay him back somehow. That is not what our obedience is about. He did all this for me. I'll show him that he didn't, you know, in my case, waste his grace. The sin offering was about atonement. But the burnt offering was about Allegiance. The burnt offering was made to say everything I have is yours Lord. In fact, we sang it in this service as well. Actually the choir did. Oh let me from this day be holy thine. Remember the choir anthem on the second page, "Oh let me from this day be holy thine." That's language of the burnt offering. The burnt offering is given not to make atonement, but it's about allegiance. It says, everything I have is yours, Lord. This is the imagery behind living sacrifice. What's the implication of the imagery? Well, there's many implications, obviously. But chiefly, this. If everything I have from God through Jesus comes to me by His grace, His mercy, not my earning, not my merits, then there is nothing God cannot ask of me. So it reasonably follows, he's saying in these two verses, it fits that in view of God's mercies accomplished for me by Jesus, I see myself now as a living slain thing day by day by day, that's my core identity, though I am alive living this life, I died in the death of Christ and therefore I live for Christ, in Christ, through Christ. We are literally the living dead. Now it's not zombie-ish, that's creepy. This being a living slain thing is the way to fullness, the way to wholeness. Other paradoxes in Scripture aim at the same reality. Like when Jesus says, if you want to gain your life, you'll lose it. You want to save your life? Give it away. Give it to me, he says. Now, you've probably heard it said that the problem with living sacrifices is they crawl off the altar. And the reason that's said, there's really a couple of reasons why that's said, probably more than two, but I'll just give you a couple of reasons. One reason that gets said that living sacrifices crawl off the altar, one reason that gets said is because we really don't believe there is nothing God cannot ask of us in our heart of hearts, particularly when trouble comes to us, when we gain some unwanted suffering, we get resentful of God. We get cynical about His goodness to us because we assume that His goodness to us means that we ought to have this protective bubble around our lives and nothing bad should penetrate that. And so we, we, we crawl off the altar. You, you can't ask this of me. If you let this into my life, I can't serve you. If you don't give me this, if you don't keep me from that, I won't serve you. Crawling off the altar. But another reason it gets said that the problem with living sacrifices as they crawl off the altar is because honesty with ourselves about ourselves leads us to, to distrust ourselves making these great pledges of allegiance and loyalty. Even if all fall away from you, I will not. Now, maybe you won't as dramatically as Peter's denials of Jesus, which I'm quoting there, but As we turn to verse 2 now, and to our second consideration, the experience of living sacrifice, that's giving you a little bit about the imagery, but now as we turn to the experience, how far do we have to go still in breaking with patterns of conformity to this world system that is in slavery to sin, even when we understand and have believed the gospel? The gaps between our easy-going conformities to the world around us and our resistance to God's transforming us are spaces in which we find ourselves sliding off the altar again and again and again, and we justify that. And that's because we have a vested interest in holding on to ourselves, We naturally seek from sin and the patterns of life in a fallen world what we should seek from our Savior. And this is why we are told in verse 2 do not be conformed to this world. Here's the, the first clear and present imperative, the first clear directive. Do not be conformed to this world. There will be a lot of things to do, but here is do not be conformed to this world, but be, here's a contrast, transformed. Instead of confirmation, transformation by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You understand the Bible doesn't waste its commands. Put that another way, we're never told in Scripture something we don't need to hear. You'll never find an exhortation in Scripture, make sure that you're, you're eating. Make sure that you're breathing. Don't hold your breath until you turn red in the face and pass out. We're exhorted by Scripture in areas where we have failed. We're exhorted in areas where human nature has worn the path down that, that, that is many people go this direction. We're exhorted in areas where we're likely to avoid or neglect. Verse 2 here is the experience of living sacrifice. Staying put on the altar, not crawling off. How? Verse says, by not conforming to this world. And I like the way the NIV renders it the pattern of this world. Because pattern gives us an image. Pattern of this world. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And this is more than a mental exercise. I know the real cerebrally oriented intellectual Christians love this verse because it's the the chance to exhort the church. You need to love God with your mind. And that's true, we do. But mind here is not not brain. It, It involves our desires, our affections. Our emotions are, are, are caught up in this. We've talked a lot about getting our loves in order. If sin is disordered love, then transformation is about getting my loves in order. So, so the renewal of our minds, our uh, desires, our affections, our, our actions, really everything about us. Not just what we think or what we say we believe by the, the listing of a doctrinal statement everything about us, what we love, what we hope for, what we, what we desire, what we, what we gnash our teeth about and claw our pillow at night uh, crying over. And the net effect of this, the verse goes on to say, looking at verse 2, the net effect of this, not being conformed to the world, being transformed by the renewal of our mind, the net effect is a kind of discernment, notice verse 2, discernment for living in this world And that discernment is going to put Christ and Him crucified foremost in everything. I'll explain that. Let me give you a grid for applying this. Verses 1 and 2, we're we're in the land of paradox. It's comprehensive in an economy of words. (laughs) It's comprehensive and then it touches on everything. But it's an economy of words, it takes all these. All this material in chapters 1 through 11 and says in these two verses, here's what that was about. Here's the point. The point is, you've been justified, and now here's how you live like that in, in practical effect. Here's the experience of living sacrifice. This is about everything. And if you think about everything, we're really thinking in four main categories. When you think about everything, The four categories you think in is creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Let me offer this as a grid for how to think about this renewing renewing of of our minds. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Creation, how did this world come about? How did all that is come about? Is it the product of chance, random mutations, or is there a design and an intention? This is the category of creation, the category of fall. What's wrong with this world? Everybody, most everybody agrees that something is wrong with the world. What is it? What's wrong with this world such that we have to be told not to conform to it as as Christians? That's the fall consideration. The redemption category, how can the world be made right? Can the world be renewed? This is about redemption. And then consummation, what's the world's ultimate hope? What's the end of all things, really? What, what's it going to be? Is this just going to burn up, you know, entropy takes effect, the second law of thermonuclear dynamics, what, what's going to happen? Or is there going to be a renewal? Is everything going to be made new? I'm putting creation, fall, redemption, and consummation before you here because verse 2 gives us the experience of living sacrifice as not being conformed to the patterns of this world, but being transformed, present active tense, By the renewing of our minds around Jesus' person and work. How do we know that that's what this is about? Because look at the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God part. What is good, acceptable, and perfect will of God, that always orbits around the person and work of Jesus. This world in rebellion and opposition to God, it offers us not just alternative explanations, but alternative patterns to the gospel pattern. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation, everything. It's like four pillars holding up everything, and the world is always wanting to topple those pillars as they stand according to Christ. Let's go back through them. Consider creation. Are we self-made? If you think that we're self-made, if you think that we're the products of a mindless material process, That's going to affect how you understand accountability to God. Whether you owe Him anything, whether your life is really made in His image and likeness and and therefore valuable to Him, or, or whether it's not. Consider the fall piece, the fall pattern. Are we basically good? Something is wrong with the world, as I said. Everybody knows it. But what is it? The world says people are basically good. And the world is bad in in spite of the fact. It's just just some, some people have done badly and that's why things are... The world's basically of a mind that people are basically good. But the gospel says what we are is basically for ourselves in such a way that sin is always a live option for us. And sin is what got everything turned uh, off kilter in the first place. This is what renews our our minds. This is is what we're told in Scripture, by Scripture, in order to, to hold on to, in order to keep from being sucked into the world's pattern, which is to deny what God has revealed. To deny what God calls for, to not render it to Him. Creation, fall, redemption, the redemption pattern that the world conforms to is that you don't just make yourself, you save yourself. But the gospel says every effort at self-salvation is just a better version of lostness until we own God's ownership of us through Jesus. If you conform to the world's pattern of, of redemption and even consummation, which talks about what is our ultimate, then, then you look to relationships, you look to careers, you look to possessions, you look to accomplishments, you look to intense experiences, whether I've been to Coachella or not, you know, as, as whether my life has, has, really, has, has really gotten to the, to the essence of what is the most important. I've seen so-and-so in concert. I've been in such-and-such a stadium. I've walked on such-and-such a street. All these are wonderful experiences. I'm not not downplaying. I'm saying they're not the ultimate that people make them out to be. And when people make them out to be the ultimate, that that's the consummation of life. When we go seeking our redemption, our consummation, our ultimate fulfillment in something less than Christ, it will fail us. Even something like love. Let's take love as an example. People say, if I could just be loved by that person, if I could just find the love of my life, everything would be in the right key. If I could just be loved by that person I really want to be loved by, I'll have everything I've ever needed. This is how a, a million, millions of people pursue relationships, with, with this weight. I've got to find my soulmate. I've got to find the one who's, who's perfect for me. How many people tell themselves this? It's, and it's the through line of most romantic stories, certainly the ones that are put on screen. And, and adding to that, the difficulty, if, if any of if our young people are, are YA fans, you read a lot of young adult literature, watch the movies, is this gets paired with sex. The, the, the teenage girl who's dying of, a, of an illness has to know the physical love of a teenage boy or she's never lived. That's the pattern of this world. We're being told, don't conform to that. Don't get sucked into that. Love is good, but no one you love or are loved by in this fallen world can be your Savior. I tell that to every premarital couple I take through the process. You will not be each other's Savior, as good as your marriage hopefully will be. The gospel says, find the love that raises the dead. And put your security there in that one who loves you that way. And then you'll have everything you need. Then you can face just about everything. Renewing our minds is is orienting ourselves as a daily practice to the reality of everything God has promised to be for us in Jesus, we seek to be deeply rooted to that, that this permeates into the core of our beings. It, it, it gets into our bloodstream and then moves out into the extremities of our life. All our priorities and relationships, we don't compartmentalize. We, we live as a, as a whole. We seek wholeness and integration rather than compartmentalization. We renew our minds by the redemptive pattern set in the gospel. The reason I'm giving you creation and fall and redemption and consummation is that everybody, even non-Christians, think in those terms. They're the pillars of, of, of upholding everything. And every day the world deals in alternative creation, fall, redemption, and consummation patterns. Every day the world exchanges and trades in alternative creation, fall, redemption, and consummation currencies. And we're being told here, don't buy in. Don't invest there. Know about it. Know how to talk to your neighbors and your friends about what's going on in, in their own heart and mind and life, but don't buy in. Don't conform to that, and, and not in order to become contrarians. The, the epitome of Romans 12, 1 and 2 in practice is not a mean Christian who doesn't have time for anybody except those people that they think are the most holy and approved by the Lord. The, the, this is not to make us miserable theists. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Someone this week reminded me of Charles Spurgeon's words. It was in just a conversation. Charles Spurgeon said, discernment, you got discernment here in verse 2, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. He said it is knowing the difference between right and almost right. That is a beautiful insight. Discernment is knowing the difference between right and almost right. And let me plug that in for you because that's what we're being called to here. Knowing the difference between right and almost right. The world and its rebellion against God is so slick and so subtle in its almost right alternatives. So let's put it back into the love equation, using love as an example. This pursuit, everybody is out there trying to find, trying to find the right lover, you know. Find that one special person, and you're the luckiest person in the world. You've hit the jackpot of human experience. Remember that famous scene in the movie Jerry Maguire where he gets home as fast as he can? This is the, this is the you complete me scene. You had me at hello. And what leads up to that is he, he gets home as quickly as he can. He's just made the big deal for his athlete client, but, but he's realized more than he was after not just the deal he he really wanted his wife to be there he's 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 realized how much he cares for her a good realization not trying to ruin romantic stories for you but he gets home and he and he walks in on this on this living room scene where his wife is hosting all her friends a bunch of ladies are over in the living room and they've just been complaining about how men have let them down and here comes jerry mcguire in the door says hello and begins to unfold what just happened, this mega deal that's going to change their lives forever and, and says, you know, I realized, and he's saying this to his wife who's standing there but between him, all the ladies are sitting here listening to it, and, and it's just this great scene, you know, of his wife is, is, is hearing him before all her friends profess that he's not going to disappoint her or whatever he's done in the, in the past, and now it's going to be different. And he comes to that great line, you complete me. And, you know, she says, shut up, stop it. You had me at hello, you know. And there's something really powerful in that. I'm not supposed to admit that as a guy, that there's something really powerful in that. But we feel the power of that. We feel the draw to that, to that idea when we watch a good love story like that. Oh, to be loved by that, it would just everything would fall into place. And the reason we do is because it's almost right. It's almost right that somebody could complete you like that. It's almost right. In gospel-informed reality, I'm never complete until I have the hope of resurrection. And only the true lover of my soul can give me that, and his name is Jesus. That's what we renew our minds by. I'm not giving you creation, fall, redemption, consummation. It's just some sort of grid to think through. This is is how we, what I believe about whether I'm a a divine uh, design or whether I'm just some cosmic accident. It matters to the way I live my life. What I believe about where the world has gone wrong and how we should order our lives around that, It, it, it matters in what I give a pass to and what I tolerate. Etc., and so on. This pattern, creation, fall, redemption, consummation patterns, as the gospel of grace puts it, the gospel that's given by the exalted Lord Jesus, it, it, when he sets this for us and, and then sets it in for us, our purpose and our identity and our meaning begin to take shape around that. The perfect will of God as the verse goes on to say, that is the effect of minds renewed, that by, he says, uh, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You do realize you've never done this. Except, the only time you've ever known the perfect will of God is when you believed in His Son. That's the only time when you have beheld the Son as the living Lord of all, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess, at His consummation, that's when you've known the perfect will of God. See, we're too practical with verse 2 a lot of times. In an effort to make this street smart, as it were, we, we say things like, "We well, you know, I'm going to work on renewing my mind so that all my decisions are sound. You know, I've just made some bad decisions this year, and I want to make some better decisions, and... I don't know that I should have taken that job and, you know, I I, I, I want to get my big decisions right and and I want to live fulfilled and satisfied and organized and so I'm going to challenge my thinking and really try to get uh, into this uh, better than I have before. You know, that's fine, but that's not what this is about really. We give ourselves to the work of renewing our minds. Again, our whole person is in view, our loves, our desires, our goals, etc., all of it, we give ourselves to the work of renewing our minds so that we see the way that Jesus is exalted and to be exalted in anything and everything that has to do with life. I was talking with a young lady not too long ago about some decisions she was making in college, and it's really easy in a moment like that to just start trying to pick apart the decisions. Instead, I just said, Tell me where Jesus is in all this. Totally changed the conversation. Where is Jesus Christ in the midst of all these decisions? We're just walking along having this conversation. That suddenly puts it in a whole different plane. The perfect will of God is not your winning the marriage lottery or getting your career aligned just right to your interests, aptitudes, and passions, or having a, you know, this large presence on social media that you'll use for witness you know, when you're not taking selfies. <laughs> yes, the gospel deals with my distractibility and my absorption with lesser things, but the perfect will of God revolves around who the Son of God is, that He has made me acceptable and holy to the Lord. The perfect will of God revolves around the Son of God, obeying the Father through the Spirit, even into death. And the more that captivates your heart, the harder it is for you to be, to be satisfied with absorbing alternatives. Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He lived what? Perfection in God's will and way. And so if you and I are ever going to stay on the altar, something has to turn our concentration and dedication away from ourselves and having life on our terms and what everyone else is doing to what God has done for us in Jesus, which is the only truly good, acceptable, perfect thing we know and experience. And here at this table that we move to now is an experience of ingesting this reality It's fitting that the living slain things that we are called in Christ, that we worship Him by this format, that we, the living ones, are eating and drinking moments from now that which represents His sacrifice for us, His body and blood which He gave up, which He poured out into death in order to bring us in on the perfect will of God, which is life in Him. There's nothing better for us, there is no better nourishment to our person than to have Jesus sacrifice himself for us that we may in turn live for him. You and I have, have not sacrificed ourselves ever, certainly never in any perfect way, but he did, and that he did means we get to sit not just at his feet and be learners of his through life, we get to sit at his table. And what this table is, is it's an anticipation. It's a declaration, a proclamation of what happened in the past, how it is that we get to someday sit at another table with Him Himself. We're wet, our appetite is whetted for the full on banquet that awaits us when we're finally home. We're finally and fully then done with sin. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time of communion. We thank you for how it brings us into tangible expression that the cost for us to be put on this path of learning and growing, knowing, experiencing, living sacrifice, that this cost you were willing to pay. And we thank you, Lord, that we, as we sit here uh, thinking about our lives, our spouse, our kids, others in our life, we think about things, Lord, maybe that uh, we wish we'd done differently this week, things we'd done better, think about things we wish we had not done. We try to clean ourselves up. And Lord, we thank you for a tender conscience, but remind us even in that, that we could never make our conscience as tender on our own as your spirit does in response to how you break the power of canceled sin. And the emphasis in communion is on canceled. And so we thank you that you canceled our sin and that your life was restored to you, that your life was canceled only for a moment in order for our sin to be canceled, and that we know the hope of resurrection, that we proclaim your death until you come as we take these elements now. Thank you for the goodness and the glory that is your truth and your way and your will. Thank you, Lord, for all you've given us in Jesus, we pray in his name, amen.